You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview. It's December 13th. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Patrick Smith. On the podcast this week, the ever-worsening humanitarian crisis in Aleppo, the ongoing preparations by US President-elect Donald Trump for his move to the White House in January, a story that keeps on giving, and the fallout in India from the decision by Prime Minister Narendra Modi to scrap high-value currency notes. First, this week to Syria, where we may have arrived today at a pivotal moment in that country's civil war of five and a half years. The Syrian government, with the aid of its allies Russia and Iran, is on the point of retaking control of the country's largest city, Aleppo, after a sustained period of intense bombardment of rebel-held areas. I'm joined by Daniel Gorovan, head of Syrian crisis policy for Oxfam, based in Amman in Jordan. Um, Daniel, the siege of Aleppo is by all accounts almost over, but the terrible suffering of civilians trapped in a now very small rebel-held area continues. In fact, the stories emerging from there today are, are horrific. What do we know about conditions on the ground in East Aleppo at this moment? Well, we don't, we don't know anything for sure, uh, but some of the reports, as you say, are extremely disturbing. So of uh, uh, government-allied militias uh, going house to house and uh, shooting civilians, um, and we've been in touch with some of the civilian organisations who still have staff in that very, very small enclave, which is uh, still being attacked by, by government forces. And they say that the civilians there are uh, extremely desperate and very, very scared, uh, very scared that, that they will be uh, attacked or if the government fully takes over, that they'll be uh, arrested or uh, tortured or, or, or disappeared. So I think that the... The situation, which has been which has been so horrifying for so long, is is, is coming to a, uh, an apex and like, possibly a very bloody conclusion. So we're 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 calling for an urgent ceasefire to allow civilians to uh, to leave the area should they wish, and also for the uh, for the for the Syrian government and its international allies to allow. Uh, independent third-party monitors like the Red Cross to monitor any detentions uh, or screening sites to to guard against the the abuse and the human rights violations which we know civilians have been subjected to in the past and and are currently being subjected to. And. It's probably worth, Daniel, elucidating some of the specific information that is coming out today. I mean, the human, UN Human Rights Office has, has said it has received reports of 82 civilians having been killed in four different neighbourhoods. There are reports of extrajudicial killings by forces loyal to the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, mass detentions and arrests, and the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which of course is based in the UK, has reported uh, corpses abandoned in the streets and, and people, you know, too afraid to recover the dead and, and, and to bury them. Um, does that tally with any in, in, information that you have from your own sources um, in Aleppo? Uh, well, what we've heard mostly from the civilian organisations that are still there uh, is, yes, that the, the um, friends and family members have been disappeared um, and that they're, they're, they're extremely worried for their, for their fate. Um, so, yes, I mean, Oxfam ourselves, we are only present in West Aleppo, uh, and our ability to move around the city is, is very highly constrained, um, as is the, the ability of other international aid actors, which is, is in itself of a, of a concern, particularly when you have these, uh, these reports of mass killings, um, of, of civilians. So, 
Um, it is it is consistent with what we're hearing, but it's very difficult for us to be able to, to actually get out there uh, and to see for ourselves given the restrictions that the sailing government have placed us under. And for several days now, Daniel, people have been fleeing in very large numbers, fleeing East Aleppo to the west of the city. What um, what uh, awaits them there? And what kind of um, uh, you, you do have access to the west of the city, do you? And what are you are you, are you and other agencies in a position to uh, provide uh, relief and shelter for people who are fleeing uh, the east of the city? Yeah, yeah, so yes, yeah. so we are participating in the aid response in the in the west of the city. So uh, through giving uh, like hygiene kits. Um, to uh, largely to the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, uh, which is distributing these to to families who have fled the fighting in the from the east. There's a there's a lot of displaced people from the east who are gathering in collective shelters, um, and the the conditions in these in these places are far from ideal, particularly as the. Uh, the, it's actually really cold in Aleppo at the minute. It's, it's cold uh, across the Middle East. So the, there's concerns for the, the civilians just in terms of the, the assistance that, that they need to keep themselves warm, to keep themselves fed, to ensure that there's uh, sanitation facilities. What we've also heard on top of that, though, is that the, um, these reports of mass arrests and people being uh, picked up from... Uh, collective shelters or the, the people that have fled from the east. So I think the situation is really quite dire um, and we need not only an age response to, to give these people the, the things that they need to survive in cold winter nights but guarantees for their, their, their safety. And can you give us an idea, Daniel? Do, do we know how many uh, people, say, are at this moment displaced in, in West Aleppo? And do they all have access to accommodation or shelter? Or just give us a picture of what the scene is like there now. Well, I think this is changing day by day because there's, uh, the, the part of eastern Aleppo, which is held by the opposition, is, is shrinking all the time. Uh, so the, I think the last estimates were, were 400,000 displaced people in West Aleppo. Um, but obviously, as the, the area which is controlled by opposition shrinks, that number will, will swell. Um, and we hear that there's lots of the displaced people who are, are staying in burnt out or um, damaged buildings, so no heating, no water, no access to assistance, just trying to um, find any kind of shelter that we can. And what kind of uh, future, what does the future hold, Daniel, for these people, do you think? I know there's the immediate crisis you're probably dealing with, um, but is there a, a, any kind of long-term future for them in Syria? Or are these people inevitably destined to join the, the kind of desperate trail of refugees that we've already seen, you know, seeking sanctuary in Europe? Well, I think that one of the concerns is that if you look at the countries which neighbour Syria, um, they've mostly almost exclusively closed their borders. So uh, one of the real concerns is that uh, these people who might face real threats from the government, um, whether that's like direct physical threats of them uh, facing torture or disappearance, or they just don't have enough to to live on, they won't actually be able to flee to another country uh, because the, the borders have effectively been sealed. So I think it's really worrying for the civilian population that the, their options now seem really quite limited. 
Okay. And finally, Daniel, to come back to where, where you come in, you mentioned, you know, you were calling for um, safe uh, corridors and independent monitors and, and so on. Um, um, is there anything that, you know, there's a kind of sense of helplessness, I think, among people in the West watching night after night the images coming out of Aleppo, really, really horrific images, you know, the bodies of children being pulled from the rubble of bombed buildings yeah. and so on. But is there anything our, either our governments or our people as individuals can do to try to affect some change and to put some pressure on those who are who are um, really responsible for these uh, for these uh, this situation and these attacks. Well, I think that all, all governments should not only put pressure on the Syrian government, although it must be said that the Syrian government has seemed completely oblivious to all international pressure over the last five years. But importantly, I think on the uh, put pressure on the Russian government, which does have diplomatic relations with. Uh, through Western European countries, business interests um, and economic ties with uh, all the Western European countries. Um, and obviously the, the, the Russian government as key supporter of the, uh, of the, the Syrian uh, government's assault on Aleppo, itself responsible for uh, war crimes, um, <clears throat> or alleged war crimes, I think that Western uh, nations and West, Western governments must put pressure on the uh, on the Russian government uh, to alter the behaviour of the, the, the Syrian armed forces and their allies in the ground. Okay, well, it's a very bleak picture today, but um, Daniel Gorovan uh, from Oxfam, thanks for that analysis. We'll take a short break now. Next, we'll be discussing Donald Trump. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week, I'm joined by our own expert analysts, along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Whatever else one can say about the transition of Donald J. Trump to the White House, it has not been dull. I'm joined from Washington by our correspondent, Simon Carswell. Simon, so many developments here to talk about, but we'll start with the breaking news that Donald Trump has picked ExxonMobil Chief Executive Rex Tillerson as his Secretary of State, and it's just been announced that he's appointed uh, Rick Perry as his Energy Secretary. Um, to take the, the Tillerson appointment first, it's been heavily signposted in recent days, but it's a controversial appointment nonetheless, isn't it? It is. It really does blur the kind of lines between politics and business, perhaps a little bit too much. Certainly, it's causing some concern uh, amongst Republicans on the Hill. And it's going to lead to a very testy confirmation hearing. You have the likes of John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio, three uh, very prominent Republican senators, uh, expressing concerns about Tillerson's ties with Russia, the fact that ExxonMobil had done deals with um with Rosneft, the, the Russian state-owned oil company, uh, and his very close ties with Putin. Putin uh, awarded uh, Tillerson the Order of Friendship, which is one of the highest civilian orders that 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 uh, civilian honors that Russia gives foreign nationals. So there's all those concerns, but there's also much like there is with Donald Trump. There's concerns about uh, the blurred lines between Tillerson's own uh, financial interests and his own personal uh, interests in Exxon and what he's going to be doing. It's going to really cause problems in terms of his interest as an oil man, but also his role as, as, as the top U.S. diplomat. He has about $200 million worth of company stock. He's a $70 million pension all wrapped up 
in the fortunes of Exxon. Exxon. And the, trick, the tricky part for the, uh, for the State Department and for the Trump White House is how, uh, how does the Trump administration deal with the economic sanctions that were imposed on Russia uh, in the aftermath of the annexation of Crimea, the sending in of Russian tanks into eastern Ukraine in 2014. And those sanctions really did penalize Exxon. So it'll be very interesting to see in the context of uh, Donald Trump's detente, his intended detente with Putin and Russia, Russia to see what happens to those sanctions and how it affects Exxon. And is the concern um, among uh, Republicans in Congress about his uh, connections with uh, Putin and Russia, are they sufficient, do you think, for them to try perhaps to block this appointment? Well, at the moment, they're saying that they're just raising concerns. They're not saying that it's a deal breaker. They're not saying that they're going to oppose it. But I think of all the nominations that Donald Trump has made to his cabinet, and it's nearly complete at this stage, with the exception of a few key portfolios, such as um, interior and agriculture, um, it's really the one that's caused a lot of tensions with senior Republicans. Uh, And it comes um, just a few days uh, after Donald Trump started criticizing the CIA for saying that Uh, Russia was involved in meddling in the presidential election campaign with the aim of trying to win it for him and uh, put his opponent, Hillary Clinton, at a disadvantage. So all this comes um, and has created major tensions between between Donald Trump and, um, and Republicans in Congress. And I suppose against all that, I suppose, just for, for balance, it's also being reported, though, that, that Trump was advised to go to Rex Tillerson by people such as uh, uh, Robert Gates, um, the former Defence Secretary and CIA, CIA chief, James Baker, George Bush's senior's uh, Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice has been mentioned. Now, these are people who wouldn't, uh, who would have fairly strong, I suppose, um, uh, maybe anti-Russia credentials is the wrong way to put it, but certainly not in a, a pro-Russia camp. So th- does that balance the picture or does that suggest that there's, you know, the picture is more nuanced maybe than has it has been suggested? Well, I think so. I mean, if you look at Tillerson's record, he does have experience forging these big business deals uh, with foreign countries, um, including Russia. But if you look at this, the corporate world is the world that Donald Trump knows best. And you could view certainly view Tillerson as the closest thing that the U.S. corporate world would have to a secretary of state. He is somebody that travels the globe. He's very aware of geo, geopolitical tensions. He's very uh, aware of really how the world works from a business point of view. So Donald Trump, knowing uh, with his expertise in business, he sees obviously that Tillerson is somebody that could use those connections that he's made in the business world um, for the benefit of the US. But as I say, there's all these potential conflicts of interest that arise. And uh, even even newer news, if you like, is the um, is his pick of Rick Perry, his selection of Rick Perry for the energy portfolio. That's no less uh, intriguing, is it? Um, can you explain why that is? Well, it's unusual in that Rick Perry, former uh, Texas governor himself, um, a presidential candidate, dropped out very early in the race um, for the 2016 presidential race, and he was a candidate in the 2012 race. Well, what's unusual is that he had said in the 2012 race that the Department of Energy, which Trump is expected to appoint him to, to lead, uh, he has said before that that department should be abolished. So it's going to be very interesting to see how how and whether he's changed his view on that since that election campaign. Okay, and um, another big development this week, Simon, was um, the fact that Donald Trump was uh, scheduled to give a press conference on Thursday at which he was to outline how he intended to disentangle himself from his uh, business empire while he was in office. Um, That uh, press conference has been postponed, but he has kind of uh, sent out a couple of tweets about what he intends to do. Um, What's going on there and um, um, 
can you just tell us what he has actually, what information he has given in, um, about his plans in that area? Well, he was expected to give a news conference and it would have been the first news conference in more than 100 days. And it's unusual that uh, as president-elect, he hasn't given a press conference since the November 8th election, which is breaking with tradition of most presidents who have taken office. Um, so what he has said now, he's not going to go ahead with that press conference. And he said he said that even though he's not mandated by law to do it, he said he's going to be leaving his businesses before his inauguration on January 20th so he can concentrate full time on the presidency. And he has said that he's going to pass uh, the running of the businesses of his businesses to his children, Donald Jr. and Eric, along with executives. Both will, will run the businesses. But he has also said that he will not do any new deals. His businesses will not do any new deals during his term in office. Um, he has been very bullish about it. He has said, he, and he's also flip-flopped on the issue quite a bit. At one point, he said that he may hold, a, continue to hold a small stake in in the company. It's normal for presidents, if they have business interests or if they have investments, is that they put them in a blind trust. And he's made the point that he has a lot of property investments. So, um, if as as has happened before, if 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 president uh, elect, presidents elect. Uh, take office, they have to sell their shares, and he's saying it's much more difficult to do that if you have property. So um, he's 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 vacillated quite a bit on the issue, but now he's come out and said that he's going to do a press conference at a later date to discuss how that how uh, he's going to separate himself from his businesses. But as of now, he's saying that his children are run it. And there's an immediate contradiction there, really, isn't there? When he, in that he says his two sons will run his business, but there will be no new deals done during his term of office or terms of office, even um, if they were really running the business. They would be, would be free to do new deals, you'd imagine. Yeah, and and the difficulty for Trump is that um, he has lots of his lots of business interests as the owner of the uh, of the hotel and the new hotel in Washington D.C. He's both the landlord and the t- and the tenant, and that as president, he's in charge of the agency that owns the property and 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 looks after the lease on the property. So there's all sorts of conflicts of interest that are, that arise. There's pressure on him, and certainly uh, when, when diplomats come to stay in Washington, whether they will stay in his hotel, whether they will feel that they need to stay in his hotel to curry favor with the with the new president. Uh, and also, since he has been elected, uh, since his election on November 8th, he has met business executives uh, that that the Trump organization have partnered with around the world. So that's raised all sorts of questions as to whether he can disentangle himself from his business interests, given how wide they are. And is there anything, Simon, anybody can do in Congress or elsewhere to force him to uh, put greater distance between himself and his business? Or can he just uh, uh, carry on and ride out the controversy as he as he likes? Well, the Democrats have said they want to look into it. They want to hold hearings into it. There have been a number. Uh, Jason Chaffetz, who runs a, an influential House committee, said he wants to look into it as well. So there's been um, there's been lots of talk as to whether uh, that will be investigated. But um, everyone was biding their time, waiting to see how he would um, how he would separate himself from his businesses. So the fact that there's not much more clarity around uh, that beyond two tweets. I think uh, there's going to be a lot more uh, scrutiny uh, over his business interests and how he separates himself from them during his time in the presence. And finally, Simon, we've uh, something you alluded to a moment ago. We've had this um, extraordinary, um, even by the standards of these extraordinary times, this spat this week between Trump and the intelligence agencies, particularly the CIA, agencies he will be relying upon for advice and information when he is president of the US over the question of alleged Russian state interference in the ele- in the US election. Before I come to that, let's just remind ourselves here of something Donald Trump said during the election campaign. Uh, this was at a press conference in Florida in July. Russia, if you're listening, 
I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Now, uh, this week, Simon, we've heard Trump saying it's ridiculous to suggest that Russia interfered in the election, but he actually invited them to do so back in, in July, didn't he? He did. Um, this is yet more contradictions from the president-elect. Um, he's picked a fight with the intelligence agencies. Um, he said he dismissed the view that emerged last week that CIA believed that the Kremlin, uh, or certainly Kremlin-backed hackers, had stolen and leaked damaging emails from the Democrats to help get him elected. Um, and what we see now is that Trump's come out very aggressively, uh, and he's he said that if if he had lost the election and the Democrats had won and were trying to play this Russia CIA card, as he said, he would be described, it would be described as him pushing a conspiracy theory. So he's come out very aggressive against it. But um, you have now uh, Republicans in Congress, you have the Senate Republican uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying that he agrees that it, certainly this, should, this is an issue that should be looked into. And he's joined the likes of Chuck Schumer and John McCain and other Republican uh, to establish investigation to claims that Russia was meddling in the election. So um, the, the, the more the more pressing issue for Trump is that he has really fallen, started off on a very, uh, very bad note with the intelligence agencies. And also the fact that he has said that he doesn't he doesn't need to receive intelligent briefings, daily intelligent briefings as other as President Obama would or other other presidential uh, presidents elect would. So it's really um, created a lot of tension before he's even taken office uh, with the intelligent community, intelligence community here in the US. And where does this story go now, Simon? Is it is it now assured that there will be actually a, a, an investigation or investigations even by Congress into this um, alleged Russian interference at the same time as um, uh, uh, Trump is, is, is installed in the White House? Well, the senior Republicans have stopped short uh, in Congress of saying that there would be a special investigation set up. Paul Ryan has said that, yes, any foreign intervention in the elections is entirely unacceptable. But he hasn't said that there should be a special committee. Mitch McConnell, likewise, has said there shouldn't be a special committee. But McConnell has said that there is the Intelligence Committee uh, on which Democrats sit and that they, um, it's possible for the Senate Intelligence Committee to investigate these allegations. OK, we'll leave it there for now. Simon Carswell in Washington. Thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. And finally to India, where Prime Minister Narendra Modi, in an unscheduled television address on November 8th, announced a ban on the country's largest currency bills starting the next morning. The decision caused chaos across the country. And I'm joined now by our correspondent in New Delhi, Rahul Bedi. Uh, Rahul, before you give us the latest on the consequences of this decision by Mr Modi, can you remind us of what this measure involved and what was the thinking behind it? Well, as Mr Modi put it, he was wanting to put an end to uh, money laundering, drug trafficking, counterfeiting, and also tax evasion. And, uh, and the money that he banned, which is in the denominations of 500 and 1,000 rupees, uh, it equaled about 86% of the currency, which meant that for uh, several weeks, India was really functioning on about 14% of its currency, uh, even though about over 80% of all transactions in India are cash-based. So you can imagine the amount of chaos this has caused over the last uh, almost uh, five weeks. Okay. Just to be specific, so he made the announcement on November 9th, uh, November 8th, sorry. What actually happened on November the 9th? Well, uh, the effect, uh, the, the ban came into being in the midnight of 8th and 9th November. And there was complete chaos all over the country because people really didn't know what it meant. 
the 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 most obvious uh, panic was at petrol pumps because people flocked to petrol pumps to fill up their cars. Uh, there was panic in shops. Some of the fancy malls all across India stayed open till four or five in the morning because uh, they want people wanted to get rid of their old money. Uh, and that's really when the chaos began because there was uh, uh, the the government was allowing people to change some of the notes, uh, the band notes, uh, for till about uh, the uh, first week of December, uh, actually till the 30th of November. Uh, and uh, so this deadline is now over, and anybody who's left with the old currency uh, is, is as good as waste paper now. And what notes were banned, Rule? What, what denominations are we talking about? Well, we're talking about 500 rupees and 1,000 rupees. 500 rupees is roughly about uh, about six euros and a thousand rupees is double that which is roughly around 11 or 12 euro and uh, you, you you give quite a long list there of i suppose um uh, problems that that mr modi was trying to address you talked about money laundering endemic corruption um drug trafficking terrorism and so on it, it, it seems quite a list uh, uh, of of problems um and it seems quite a uh, it's it's hardly a silver bullet solution for a a list of problems as as broad as that, is it? Uh, well, um, far from being a silver bullet solution, it's uh, proved to be, uh, so far, has proved to be quite a disaster uh, because uh, a, a large section of India's population uh, is in the informal sector and deals only in cash. So there have been millions of people who've uh, really been laid off jobs. They don't have any money. Uh, the queues outside banks continue six weeks into the ban. Um, there's there's no cash in the banks. Uh, banks open at 10 o'clock and close by 11 because there's not enough currency which is being printed and uh, shipped out to across the country. I mean, don't forget that India is a population of uh, 1.3 billion people. Uh, so to keep 1.3 billion people solvent in the cash they've been used to for the last uh, many decades is uh, a Herculean task. And obviously the prime minister and his advisors uh, didn't anticipate uh, such a problem. And can you explain, Rule, um, how it was that the withdrawal of these particular denominations, how was that uh, in, in designed to address the problems we've discussed? For example, how does it uh, uh, counter money laundering to withdraw um, the 1,500 rupee denominations? Well, uh, the reasoning of the government, or so it seems, uh, although they have been no credible experience uh, forthcoming over the last several weeks is that uh, a lot of the money that was hoarded was hoarded in these large denominations. And by demonetizing these uh, large denominations, uh, these stashes of, uh, of uh, what's in India called black money or money on which tax is not being paid uh, would be unearthed. Uh, and a lot of people would go broke, except that uh, Indians are very innovative, especially in matters of money. And a lot of the big fish who actually had hordes of this of these uh, currency notes managed to trade them off uh, because there was a huge market in uh, black money, which was uh, a black market, which was operating at a premium of about between 30 and 35 percent. So let's say if you had 100 euros, uh, you would clean up the money and get 65 or 70 euros in exchange for it. And that would be clean money. Uh, what the uh, launderers did with the old money, the banned money, nobody really seems to know. Uh, but a lot of the money has been cleaned up. Uh, the estimates vary between about 200 and uh, 230 billion euros. 
so it's really anybody's guess whether this measure has really worked um, worked for what Mr. Modi wanted it to work for. And you mentioned, Ruth, the deadline has passed for um, handing up these notes. Um, do, does anybody know how much of this, this, this black money is still out there and how much has been actually uh, um, exchanged at banks? Well, uh, again, the estimate, uh, it's a very complex economic exercise, but the estimates uh, are that about uh, 80 to 85 percent of uh, the banned money has already been deposited, uh, which is a bit of a disappointment for the, for the, uh, for the uh, central bank, because they'd calculated a huge uh, non-deposit of, uh, of this money, which would have, in a sense, meant profit for the government. But that hasn't been forthcoming. So the government is a little strapped, uh, though the deadline for depositing the money, not exchanging it, but depositing the money ends on the 30th of December. So that's, in a sense, the magic date uh, by which we will know how much money has really been deposited. But so far, about 80 to 85 percent of the money that was demonetized has already uh, is, is already in, in the banks. And has the crisis abated? I mean, for ordinary people, really, the situation you described at the start there, the long queues at the banks, the, um, the you know, people not having the cash to carry out normal transactions. Has that eased? Um, is the economy working again at sort of ground level or is the crisis continuing? Crisis continues unabated. Uh, there are still long queues outside banks. And as I said earlier, uh, the banks run out of cash within a couple of hours of opening. Uh, there's not enough uh, currency in circulation. Uh, the India has four printing presses where this currency is printed. They're not able to meet the huge and enormous demand, uh, the, especially the economically weak sections of uh, people uh, like laborers and daily wage earners. Uh, they've been laid off. Uh, train loads of them are going back to their homes. A lot of factories are shutting down. Uh, Agriculture in uh, the northern states is in a complete state of disaster. Uh, farmers are offering their produce for free because otherwise it will rot. Uh, so it's there's absolute and complete chaos which is uh, continuing across India. Okay. And finally, Rul, is there, is there any confidence um, that in the long run these measures will, will work? Or um, is Mr. Modi's standing with, with, the, um, with the supporters, is it damaged um, by this controversy? Uh, well, Mr. Modi is a very powerful and a very feared leader. So a lot of people within his party are not uh, openly coming out uh, and opposing Mr. Modi and what he has done. Uh, so, But there are incipient um, rumors. There's uh, a lot of talk uh, about uh, opposition from within the party. And uh, as far as the long run is concerned, as one of our former prime ministers in a world renowned economist uh, Manmohan Singh says that uh, in the long run, quoting John Keynes, he said in the long run, we'll all be dead. Uh, so nobody really knows what the long run is. Okay, Ruel, listen, that's a very interesting story. And uh, we'll obviously be, be watching th these developments and you'll be continuing to report on them for the Irish Times. Thank you for that from New Delhi. Thanks to Daniel Gorovan, Simon Carswell and Rahul Beatty. The podcast was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can listen to all Irish Times podcasts at irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts in iTunes or using your preferred podcast app. Thanks very much for listening.